I always knew that as soon as I started the Star Trek videos, all the way back in the day when I first started with Voyager, that I was basically painting a big target on my back. Because Star Trek fans are Star Trek fans. I'm not saying they're bad. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of them. And so there's always going to be at least someone somewhere who disagrees with me. And amongst that category, there's going to be at least some people who are going to not be nice in their disagreement. I don't mind disagreements. In fact, I actually really enjoy some of the different alternative uh, ideas and perspectives I've seen in the comments section as we've been going through you know, all these videos over the last five years at this point, six years, something like that. We've been doing this a while. But every time I find myself disliking an episode of Deep Space Nine, I just kind of cringe a little bit, because Deep Space Nine, in many ways, tends to be kind of the golden boy when it comes to Star Trek. You know, they cannot do any wrong. And I have actually already had people be exceptionally unkind when it comes to my criticisms of Deep Space Nine. In fact, I actually got a comment just this morning about something like that. I'm not going to give you details. It wouldn't even matter. It was months ago from your perspective. I don't like this episode. It's not lamentation-worthy. It's nowhere near lamentation-worthy. But this is just kind of a... okay episode. If anything, most of what I have to say has to do with Wynn and how incredibly pathetic an amateur she is. I've been thinking about it, and I think the, the more I think on this, the more I think that she does qualify as a Krennic-type character. She's really thinks she's a lot bigger and better than she actually is. And she just never seems to catch on to that, even all the way up until the very end. Before we even talk about that, uh, so let's discuss the darts. There's this darts side... side I almost said side quest. <laughs> There's this dart side story. Okay. And he's in the zone. Okay. And then... He dislocates his arm socket, and there's, like, serious damage, and he needs surgery. Okay. In this very episode, one of the Bajoran gentlemen actually mentions the fact that he could have an entirely new arm and a fully functional arm regrown and functional for him within a couple of weeks. Now, I mention that because we know just how incredibly advanced medical technology is amongst the Federation in general, but if even some random Bajoran has access to that, why have they never fixed O'Brien's arm, or shoulders, to be more specific? In an episode I actually recently covered, um, I don't actually remember which one, please forgive me. It's a TNG episode that, from your perspective, probably won't have gone live yet. It was the very first time we saw O'Brien uh, injure his, his shoulder kayaking. It's a recurring theme throughout both shows. And yet somehow, despite the fact that they have access to ludicrously advanced medical technology, they can never do some kind of permanent fix for that shoulder. That's always just struck me as a little bit weird. Anyways, so I don't have much else to say about the darts thing. I still think darts is an awesome thing for DS9. It just kind of fits that sort of tone for Deep Space Nine. I do wonder why the Vulcan's being such a dick in this episode, though. Like, you notice that? <laughs> Anywho, so that's all I have to say about the B-plot. There's not much there. I have a lot more to say about the A-plot. Before I actually talk about the episode proper, I just want to say, apparently they had a lot of issues with the uh, construction of this script, and it shows. The script, the, the pacing of the script is all over the place. It just kind of lurches and then kind of slows down, and then lurches, and then it kind of slows down, and then it resolves just like that, like within a couple of minutes. Now, I know this is Star Trek, and every now and again, you know, the threat of the week is resolved within minutes, but this is just, and we're done. What? <laughs> right? I also know that this episode was de 
partially designed to introduce Shikar to the work because they wanted another love interest for Kira. This may be a weird thing to comment on, but am I the only one who finds it unusual that Kira, of all characters, gets three separate long-term love interests across the, the, the duration of the show? Isn't, am I the only one who finds that just kind of weird? Cisco basically gets one. We've already met her. Uh, Dax, uh, that's a little more debatable, but she basically gets two. They basically get two? I don't know how to say that. You know, Bashir gets one, right? Kira gets three! Anyways, I don't know what else to say about that. Except that I think that this episode is a good way to showcase why I disagreed with two separate decisions that have been made prior to this point in the ep- in the series. The first was to make it so that Wynne became the Kai and the spiritual leader of Bajor. As I ep- mentioned back in that episode, I felt like the logic that led to that decision was invalid. The logic was basically, well, we need to have um, someone in power who is against the guys. You know, we need that kind of drama. And I just disagree with that philosophy in general. I think there are plenty of other ways to engender drama and good television without needing, you know, the nearby religious leader to be an opponent. Second, of course, was the death of Beryl, which happened three months prior to this in lore and just just this season, uh, as we were going through Deep Space Nine Season 3. Now... The death was better handled. In fact, it's actually a really horrible, doomy episode. But I mention that because I want you to picture for a moment that if Beryl had, in fact, been the Kai, and stayed the Kai and didn't die. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, I swear. (laughs) He did not cease to live. There we go. I want you to picture that. And now I want you to picture this episode. Because that is a perfect example of how you can have someone who is supportive and an ally in a position of power still be an opponent. They have... Uh, picture Beryl approaches Kira, and Kira's like, hey, maybe their their relationship ended because he's you know religious leader and they can't be together, or whatever. You know, sure, fine. So they're pushed apart. If you really want Shakara to be the boyfriend of the week, sure, whatever. By the way, if you think I'm being dismissive, the way that Shakar and Kira end up breaking up in the future is laughable. <laughs> so it's not like they cared that much. But anyway, so if you want him to be the boyfriend of the week, fine. So they broke up back in the episode where Beryl was supposed to die. Sure. Beryl approaches her and says, listen, I've been discussing things over with the council. Uh, and with all of the regional heads of the various provinces. And they all agree that what we need right now more than anything else is to get some external commerce flowing through Bajor. Right now, Bajor is getting to the point where we're finally able to start feeding our own people and no longer being in a state of starvation and poverty. If we start being able to get some genuine exports, we'll be able to start bringing more and more people in, which will not only strengthen our our, our petition to join the Federation, but will also mean that we'll be able to have some kind of economic connections or ties to sit back on in case something goes wrong locally. We'll, be, we'll actually have hard currency to be able, and trade connections, so if we have a bad harvest, it's no longer this doomed death thing because we can now purchase food as needed, becoming more independent, right? All of this makes perfect sense, except for the fact that they're not in the Federation yet. I'm sorry, but the fact that the Federation, who has invited random backbone planets who've never even heard of space travel into the Federation before is almost laughable that they take so long to get Bajor in. And I mention this because, remember, this isn't Bajor rejecting the Federation, which would make more sense. It's the Federation being like, well, we'll consider it. 
and will take a long time doing it for some stupid reason. Now, it, that does end up to be a good thing long term, obviously, and I don't want to spoil too much. It's just, I, I would have liked it more if they had structured the episodes so that it's Bajor, especially the Bajoran people, who aren't really sure they want to be part of the Federation, rather than the Federation dragging its heels. Anyways. Moving on. So, Boreal approaches her and says, so we need these, uh, God, I don't know, the soil reclamators back. And we need them now because we need to get this harvest in because this is a time-sensitive thing. We're only going to have this, you know, this two-month period in order to actually get this harvest through. Once it's back, we'll return them. So she goes and talks to Shakar, and Shakar says, no. We have been waiting for, I actually wrote it down here, let's see. We've been waiting three years for a chance to get these things. We just, we just finally got them two months ago, and we were told we could get them for a year to turn this soil into actual productive farmland. We... <laughs> what the hell? And you can see now how we have an actual dilemma. Instead of Wynn, who is clearly the bad guy here, so obviously overtly the bad guy, that it's kind of funny. I'll discuss more about her when we get to the actual episode analysis. Versus Shakar, who is clearly the good guy, refusing to even shoot on his own people. Instead, it would be Beryl who is in a complex situation and trying to think of the macroscopic level of, of the, the entirety of the Bajoran people versus Shakar, who is far more ground level and thinking of the microscopic perspective of the people. Right? This is what I mean. You don't need people in power to be your enemies to make them interesting. My opinion. And I just wanted to give that out there before we really started talking about the episode because I've heard several people say, ah, oh, you're a moron. Well... There's my evidence for whether or not I am a moron. Make your own decision on that one. So, Wynne becomes the head of the provisional government basically because she's unopposed in the elections. <laughs> Why does no one else run? Like, I get that the point is that Shakar is going to run by the end of the episode and then beat her. But why does no one else run? It's not like we don't know that there are other ambitious people in Bajor. We had to stop one of them back in Season 2. So why is no one else running to opposed to Miss Adami? Ignoring the fact that she's this horribly evil, terrible person, even if we completely ignore that fact and everyone else pursues, perceives her as to be a decent person, why is this, like, right? I mean, this, this is just so strange. I feel like it was constructed specifically just to make the episode line up so that she is the leader no matter what. Because she is a bad leader. Like, she is terrible at it. This is, of course, very in character for Wynn. She is the kind of person who does big, broad, overt strokes. And she does this constantly. But, like, okay. So first she goes to Kara. She says, hey, so listen. Um, could you go get this equipment back for me? And notice she deliberately does not give Kira all the information. All she says is, uh, we need this, this is why we need this, go do this. She also manages to insult Kira twice in the conversation where she does this, because Wynne's biggest downfall is probably her pride, and the fact that this upstart child actually dared to oppose her multiple times by this point in history is just the kind of thing that she can barely stomach. So you can just kind of see the disdain in her in her voice and tone, barely restrained as she talks down to her. It's been nearly three months since Beryl died. You can't possibly still be grieving for the loss of someone who died three whole months ago. you got to move on, right? 
And then later on she says, Beryl said you were very convincing. I hope he was not inaccurate. I just, I hope he wasn't mistaken as I think is how she actually phrases it. Wow, Wynn. What I find funny about Wynn is I, I'd like to say I have no idea how she ends up in power. But ultimately, I've seen too many history, historical examples. We don't even need to go into real life history. Let's, let's keep politics out of this. We can look at plenty of times in history when someone came to power who had a low int, a low whiz, and a low charisma. And that is when her stats are in the gutter. <laughs> right? Anywho. So then they, she goes and she meets Shakar. And, well, I'm going to go and just address the contrast here very quickly because when is very overt and very obvious in her strategies. But she also is someone who has the charisma of a wet blanket. By contrast, Shikar just sort of naturally exudes a degree of confidence and competence, which isn't charisma per se, but serves as a form of charisma. Because if you see someone and they look like they know what they're doing, they act like they know what they're doing, people will tend to follow that person. <laughs> This could be damaging if they're faking it. I don't think Shikar is faking it. I'm just pointing it out. But Shikar is clearly like, let's do this. Here's how we're going to do this. And everyone's just like, okay. And everyone just goes along with it without hesitation, including Kira, I might note. <laughs> I point that out because, again, this makes it a little bit too binary. Shikar is clearly the good guy here and the natural-born leader. And Win is Win, <laughs> the most inaptly named Bajoran of all time. So they, they start and they have, and they have, a, they have some good scenes, which I'm just kind of brushing over because I don't have much to say about them. They're good stuff. It's good humanization or Bajoranization, if you prefer. I mentioned the arm thing. That's actually a really great scene, the fact that he says, you know, I told the prophets I was willing to lay down my life if I could rescue you people. And I got all of you out, so this is the price I paid. And I kind of like that, that the option exists for him to grow his arm back, but he chooses not to for personal and, let's be honest with ourselves, spiritual reasons. I'm with that. That makes sense to me, and it's a nice way to help develop the character. We'll actually be seeing them in the future, too, if I'm not mistaken, both uh, he and her. Uh, Pharrell and um, Lupaza, I think, was her. And they all mention how, of course, they've been farmers. And notice how it takes a while for them to mention their side of the argument. It takes until they've basically already said no for them to finally admit, look, this is soil we'd like to grow. We are farmers. We've been waiting for years. And they don't say this, but the implication is that they've been living on handouts until they finally got these reclamators. These reclamators are going to take a while. Kira later quotes six months for them to really be able to finish their work. That's about eight total months. They were given them for about a year, so that makes sense. So they are desperately trying to make a living of living, like literally just trying to be self-sustaining. Again, a bit of a micro perspective, but not an invalid one, and you could see the appeal of it. <laughs> so then it cuts to Win, who is a Kranich. So she, oh my god, she presumes total authority. She, I am the, the Kai, and I'm also the provisional leader. So therefore, everyone should do everything I say. It's literally the law. I'm in charge. Why aren't you? She's the kind of person who doesn't understand that political power depends on your supporters. That, you, that political power is an intangible concept, unlike real personal power. She cannot actually do things. All she can do is say things and order things and hope that other people follow her orders. So she presumes total authority with no understanding of the nature of political infrastructure. 
she then insists the other side is unreasonable and ins insults him constantly. And then I, there's this funny, I wrote this note down here and it says, there's no strong argument for, uh, she has no strong argument for keeping it. And, er, wait, I'm sorry, that's the wrong note. She, here we go. Sorry, she, ref she has no strong argument for trying to, for refusing to compromise and refuses to sit down and discuss. Now, I scratched that out because I, in the episode, she's like, well, I guess I have no choice but to do this. And I was like, oh, I must be remembering the episode wrong. I'll just scratch that out. And as I was sitting here, I'm just sitting here right here, scratching this out as the episode's still playing. I got my headphones on. And then she kind of sits down and the music gets doomy and then it cuts to Kira. And then the militia showed up. But I'm just like, oh, that's why I remembered that that way. Because she actually does refuse to compromise and refuses to discuss. Now, from her perspective, it's perfectly logical. She doesn't need to compromise with an underling. She's in charge. But thus you can see how she is a bad politician. Now, I've discussed this many times before, the difference between a good politician and a bad politician. To refresh really quickly, a bad politician is not, it, it doesn't have anything to do with morality or ethics or sliminess or anything like that. A bad politician is someone who's overt and obvious and dumb, like Kai Wynn. A good politician is someone who knows how to re-maneuver a situation and carefully manipulate things in order to try and get things done. My, the most typical example I like to use is Vane Solidar or from Final Fantasy XII, but there are several examples of that in this very show. Sisko himself is arguably a good politician. Dukat kind of goes back and forth, Weyoun kind of goes back and forth, but there are several examples of that in this show. But Wynne is so overt, she sends the militia to arrest Shakar rather than being willing to discuss a compromise. She just presumes natural authority. Then Sisko comes down, and there's this great scene, which once again highlights the difference between the two, because she tries really hard, really hard, to try and outmaneuver Sisko. And just like every time she tries that, she fails miserably. She even tries to use um, what I like to call overtly misleading... Uh, uh, Word choice? Sentence structure? God, I don't know what else. Overtly misleading terminology. There we go. We'll go with that. I was forced to send the militia to arrest Citizen Jakar. Stuff like that. You know, I had to do it. You don't understand. I was trying to be reasonable. You know, that kind of a thing. And I say overtly because slanting is something that's a real thing. When you try to slant a dialogue, say, well, yeah, I mean this way, but I didn't really mean it, or ah, I kind of had to do that. But when you're overtly slanting, it's obvious that you don't mean what you're saying, that you are basically deceiving, even if you are not outright lying. So, I was forced to send, and I wrote a cuss word here, which I'm not going to say out loud. I really don't like when a dummy, I really don't, if that's not obvious. Uh, so... And then Cisco, by contrast, he slants his dialogue back, but he does it in a very quiet and far more effective way, basically comparing her to the Cardassians. She kind of slips right by that. I like to think that she didn't even notice that he just did that. So then, of course, cisco has been paying attention to the political situation on Bajor. Why the hell wouldn't he? Not only is it literally his job, Remember, that's one of the original reasons for a Starfleet post here, all the way back in Emissary. But Cisco has a, a significant interest in the Bajoran system and the Bajoran people. Even And all of that is ignoring the, the idea of him being the Emissary of the Prophets. So Cisco obviously gives a damn and is obviously paying attention. I love that because she once again tries to basically showcase things as if it's not that bad. And he's like, oh, well, but what about these things I already know about? And she's like, oh, well, clearly you're talking to Kira. No, I haven't heard anything from Kira. 
oh, notice how she tries to hide things, and then she tries to say, oh, well, your information's unreliable, and both times Cisco just completely shuts her down because he's better at this than she is. So she, it's mentioned that she has established martial law in some areas and has suspended local government. Who is loyal to this woman? Like, I'm actually kind of curious. I really am to be able to, to pull this kind of crap off. And then it flat out says she wants Starfleet to do her job for her. Now, I point that out because I think that's probably the best example of the fact that she at least has some awareness of how weak her position is. She realizes that sending the Bajorans after the other Bajorans is not the best solution for the reasons that eventually end up happening. The two will talk and be able to reason and compromise, whereas she wants them to absolutely follow her orders. So if she sends in Starfleet, well, she knows they'll follow orders. They won't be from her, but at least they won't be someone who might be able to destabilize the situation for her, and she'll stay in charge. And she even says it'll be a good way to strengthen the, the relationship between Bejar and Starfleet. Sisko, calmly, replies, I wasn't aware our, strength, our relationship needs strengthening. And she immediately, oh, yeah, no, what I mean is uh, another sign, another showcasing of the strong relationship between our people. And <laughs> I love it. And then he basically says no, and she's like, oh, well, I'm afraid if Starfleet isn't willing to support us, maybe we should withdraw our admission. Once again, a very blatant, overt, and frankly stupid political move. She is trying to threaten Cisco, <laughs> and, and, and thus threaten the Federation with the idea of her trying to withdraw the official admission into the Federation. I can't even begin to explain how stupid that is, so I'm just going to move on. So he, of course, says, oh, oh, I see. I didn't realize, I think you're overreacting. In fact, I think everything you've been doing is overreacting. And she finally loses her cool for the first time. And is like, this is, this is about the, the future. This is about, and you could tell the whole time that she's just spouting the lines that she doesn't actually mean. This is all about her maintaining control. But one little thing slips in there. I've mentioned before how Wynne has been a get-off-my-screen character in the past. Honestly, going back through the show, she's kind of been restored from that a little bit. Mostly on the strength of the actress. Um, Louise Fletcher is actually a really good actress and really manages to add a lot of nuance and power to what is otherwise a very slimy role. I'm pretty sure that if this was a character played by just about any other actress, it would not have worked as well for me. I already hate her damn skull and I want to explode it in fire. But <laughs> I hate her. But she's kind of coming back from get-off-my-screen territory. There's this bit where she says, this is all a test from the prophets, to, to, to test if I am worthy. And in that, we get probably one of the first honest things she said in the entire episode. That underneath all her political maneuvering and all her power-hungriness, there is someone under there who really believes in the prophets and who really believes that this is some kind of spiritual test being placed on her. Given what we learn in the future about the interesting nature of her relationship to the prophets, this isn't actually all that surprising. It's clear that this woman really does feel tested here. Now, whether that's self-delusion meant, or her trying to excuse her own actions, or maybe just another shade of her character in addition to her power-hungerness, I'm not sure. But it is at least another layer to make her, you know, more multidimensional. And let's be honest, that's one of the things DS9's really good at, so I'm with it. Still wish it was Brile, but, you know, whatever. So then... 
then they're, they have the ridge, and they're going to shoot them. And, and what's funny is both Kira and Shakar put down their weapons independently of each other. Neither of them admits this to the other. Until finally they both, you know, having already made this decision, they both admit they just can't fire on other Bajorans. I kind of like that. I tend to be anti-tribalism in general. And for, for obvious reasons, it's caused so many problems in human history. But at the same time, there is that sense of family. I know that that sounds strange, but to explain what I mean by this, I don't think they were unwilling to fire on Bajorans. Lord knows Kira has actually attacked and assaulted multiple Bajorans in her life. No, I think it's the fact that that's not just Bajorans down there. Those are people they know. That's someone they recognize, someone they have met personally and have a great deal of respect and, and, and admiration for. And I think that's part of why when they decided to go down, both sides were so interested in keeping it from turning into a firefight. Not just because these are Bjorans, but because these are allies. And I think that's a far stronger bond than the fact that we happen to be the same species, my opinion. The way they talk back and forth and share, you know, accounts of each other kind of helps to showcase that. Then the one guy starts to shoot, and both sides, note this, both sides immediately throw their hands up and desperately plead for no one to keep firing, because it would have been extremely easy in the moment for one random person to fire the second shot. And the moment a second shot was fired, that would probably be the end of it. Civil War. So both sides are very adamantly trying to keep that from happening. Thankfully... They do manage to keep it on the down low. The guy who shot is like, get the... <laughs> the colonel goes over and says, get the hell out of my sight. <laughs> like, you could just see the venom coming, <laughs> exuding off of him. Like, go away, you moron. And then they go back, and it's like, I... And they have this great line. I didn't fight the Cardassians for years to start shooting at Bajorans. The other guy says, yeah, me neither. So what do you do about this? And what's funny is, maybe this is just me because I've studied politics most of my life and, you know, I kind of have that political mindset, but the solution seems so obvious. I can't believe no one ever thought of it before. Remember, Wynne was running unopposed. So, have Shikar run. Very simple. Now, the irony of this is I think this could have worked earlier on, too. But as of this point, it's a guarantee. The Bajorans are very big in their... Hero worship, you know, they really venerate individuals of renown. We've actually already seen this back in the three-parter of the circle, back in uh, season two. And I mentioned that. I once again think it would have been better if it was him instead of this new character, but let's just move on from that. Recurring characters, right? <laughs> it's the thing. They just don't like recurring characters for some reason. Anyways, um, so the thing, the idea here is you run, and of course the Bajoran people are going to be inclined to vote for you because you were a renowned leader of the resistance. And in the modern era, it, it, I mean, it was that was already a thing, but now what's he doing? He's not sabotaging or killing or torturing. He's just trying to once again stay hidden in the hills and try to resist the authority from taking you know, his, his farm equipment. So the word starts to spread a little bit and people are starting to support him a little bit more, right? And what's funny about this is Kira mentions that if you decide to run opposed to him, by the way, this is another example of a better politician, although it's funny hearing that come from Kira, of all people. But Kira says, if you decide to run in opposition, this incident will be made public, which means everyone will know that you risked a civil war over some farm equipment. And so Wynne, of course, just basically doesn't run, and Shakara becomes the new provisional leader. Yay! <sighs> It's not a terrible end to the episode, because it makes logical sense. 
But at the same time, it really does feel rushed. And like I said, that's just kind of the whole thing as, an, as, a, as a simplicity. This whole episode feels like it was just worked and worked and worked and never really quite got there. That's all I got. I like how she calls it a coup, by the way. So this is a coup. No, lady. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I got. I do hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.